you know, if a, if a young person or any person of any age has the courage to tell you who they are, whether you're a family member or a friend or whoever, you know, know that the, the life that they were living in secrecy or not being able to be honest about who they were is probably harder than the life that they, that they are going to face. And so while there are very real challenges and very real discrimination and violence and you know, harassment and all of those things we talked about against the trans community and the queer community, that you know, not being able to be who you know you are is incredibly painful. If you've ever wondered what separates top performers from everyone else, you probably discovered it is just a couple differentiators that determine wild success from average results. My name is Don McPherson, and for two decades, I've been working with executives to help them optimize performance at the individual, team, and organization levels. Now I interview exceptional people from all walks of life so we can learn from them. Welcome to 12 Geniuses. This is a story of competition, opportunity, and equality. Today's guest is an elite athlete who has fought his way to the top of his sport and is advocating for others who have been sidelined so they are able to participate in sports and in life. Chris Mosier is a six-time member of Team USA, representing the United States in the sprint triathlon as well as short course and long course duathlons. He has also competed in and completed four Ironman races. Chris is the first transgender athlete featured in ESPN's Body Issue, and he's a member of the National Gay and Lesbian Hall of Fame. An advocate and champion for the transgender community, Chris might be best known as the man who changed the Olympics. Chris, welcome to 12 Genius. Thanks for having me. Let's start by talking about your athletic career. At what age did you become interested in athletics and which sports were you most passionate about at a young age? It's honestly the first memory that I have is of being competitive in sports. I would say four years old. I started off playing neighborhood baseball, t-ball, and then softball, and then moved into basketball, volleyball, and softball in high school, and then started to pick up sports again after college. How did you get interested in the duathlon and triathlon? Well, I think that it's a complicated story, right, As, as many of our stories are, but for me, it was a way to sort of reconnect with the great parts of my identity. And so what I mean by that is when I grew up, I found myself most feeling like myself when I was playing sports. So I found my friends and I found my community through playing sports. And I felt like it was the place where I was most accepted and valued as a person. And it really was where I felt most at home, most at home in my body, in my personality, And just as a person. And for me, it was really a way to fit in with my peers that no matter what people thought of me off of the court or the field, they loved and appreciated me because I was a good athlete. I was a great teammate and a great leader. And so that was really what drew me to sports. And I think it was just, you know, the matter of being a kid and team sports is what you have the the access to as a kid. And when I came back into sport, so maybe to back that up, I I did not play college sports and I was kind of setting myself up for collegiate sport career. And when it came time to make the decision to play college sports, I chose not to. The reason I chose not to was that I was assigned female at birth. I identify as a transgender man. And at that time, I didn't identify as a trans man. And honestly, I didn't even know transgender existed. I didn't know the word, but I was, I grew up playing girls and women's sports. And so I was raised and socialized as female playing girls and women's sports. And when it came time to college, I didn't know the terminology, but I knew at that time that I didn't feel comfortable on a girl's team, on a women's team. And when you get to college, there's basketball and then there's women's basketball. And that was the route that was laid out for me. And I knew that I was having a growing discomfort with being on a women's team. And so I chose not to do that. And and really in college, I did all of the intramural, you know, co-ed activities, soccer, badminton, ultimate frisbee, whatever I could do 
to still be active, to still participate, but not to have to do that gendered thing. And then after, after college, that was the opportunity for me to reconnect to my body, to myself, to the feelings that I loved of being competitive, but to do that in a way that was individual, that avoided that team and gender piece of that. Mm-hmm. What have been some of your athletic achievements? I don't know. My, my favorite achievements, I guess, is uh, being the first transgender man to make a men's U.S. national team. And that happened in 2015 for the 2016 world championship race. And that was a big moment for me, but it also felt like a, a really big moment for the trans community, for the athletic community to sort of break that barrier. And it really provided me the platform to show other people that it is possible to be your authentic self and continue to play the sports that you love. Because before that moment, there was very little visibility of trans athletes. I'm not the first transgender athlete and definitely not the first known trans athlete who's had a platform, but there was a big gap between Renee Richards in the 70s and my coming out in 2010 and beginning to compete as male in 2011. And so, you know, that, that time switch there left a big gap for, the, for trans people to see themselves in sports. So there's this big gap between Renee and you and not a ton of activity in there. It sounds like you carried a torch. Is that a torch that you were willing to carry or did it just kind of fall on your lap? I really worked my way into being willing to carry that torch. And for me, so, you know, in thinking about transitioning in 2000, say 2008, 2009, I understood my identity to be that of a transgender man. And I really like, I didn't know the terminology growing up. I didn't know trans people in real life before I transitioned. I didn't have relationships, role models, people that I could look to, to say, okay, there's possibility for me as, as a trans adult, there's possibility for me as a transgender athlete. And I didn't see that reflection of myself when I was looking. I think that I had a lot of hesitation in coming out publicly, particularly 2009. I delayed my transition for over a year because I didn't want to lose my ability to be competitive in sport. Being a competitive athlete is so important to me. It's such a core part of my identity. And when I started running and doing triathlon as female, I was doing pretty well. And I saw, I saw a possible future for myself in winning races, in making Team USA, in you know, being an All-American in the future. And I didn't want to give that up, that, that possibility of pursuing my athletic career in the way that I denied myself in college. So the reason that I thought that that wasn't possible was that I didn't see people doing it. And I also didn't see the policies that would allow me to participate. When did you first compete as a triathlete? Or do athlete? 2009 was my first year really? in, in oh. triathlon. Okay, so and you... then 2010 was my first year as male. So like I did a year, uh, season and a half as female. And at that time, you saw yourself as you, you could compete at the highest level as a as a woman. It wasn't. I mean, you don't you don't start off at the highest level, right? But I did win my first race. You did and so. Okay, there was definitely a possibility for me of saying, okay, I just started this. Like maybe there's a future for me in triathlon. And, and so you decided to transition very quickly after that. Were you feeling like you just weren't being true to yourself? Well, I think for years, I felt like I wasn't really being true to myself, but I didn't know what it was. Like, you know, starting off, I think that every young person has a very clear sense of self and understanding of who they are. And it's not until adults begin to tell them that they're wrong and that they're, they're acting in a way that they shouldn't be, that we start to question ourselves. So I have very distinct memories of somebody pulling me around the back of my house when I was a four-year-old saying, you can't run around like this. Little girls can't run around with their shirts off, right? And I, with my little four-year-old body, look like every other little four-year-old running around with their shirt off and I don't get it. And then I'm growing up and people are telling me, you can't wear your hat backwards. You're a little girl. Little girls don't do that. You can't skateboard. Little girls don't skateboard. And all of these things as I'm growing up, I shouldn't like this clothing and I shouldn't wear this color and I should be attracted to these toys and not these toys. And I kept getting those messages and thinking like, you know, well, you're telling me I'm a little girl and little girls don't skateboard, but I skateboard. So I'm confused. Like, I don't understand, you know, like what's wrong here. And I think there were all these moments where these discrepancies kept popping up. And I started to think like, well, what's wrong with me? I can tell that I'm very clearly not like my peers. I'm not like the other girls in my class, but at the same time, I could tell that I wasn't like my brother 
and the little boys in his class. And so I just always had this sense of like, I'm just me. I am unique. I am, but I'm, but I was comfortable with that. And, and growing up, I think that I, I felt that way until a certain point. And then I started to question why the world wasn't reflecting back to me the way that I saw myself. So it sounds like you weren't sad or depressed or, you know, having huge conflicts with it growing up. You just accepted yourself where you were, maybe not accepted by either boys or girls, but just, I think that's fairly uncommon with people who, who struggle with their gender identity, isn't that? Well, yeah, and I think we, it's important to say I'm a, I'm a trans person, but I'm a case study of one. Right. You know? No, I understand that. For as many different ways as there are to be a man and to be a woman, there are that many different ways to be a trans person. And so there's not just a one singular trans experience. And, and the way transition looks on us can look very different. And different people want to pursue different avenues of the transition in order to feel like their most authentic version of themselves. You know, I wouldn't say that my experience wasn't you know, or was without you know, depression or, or anxiety or, or feelings of, you know, feeling like something was wrong. But I think that one of the great things that I've, I've done as an adult, as probably as a coping mechanism, is to not dwell on the bad parts of my experience. I think what we see in the media a lot, if it's not a celebratory story like Laverne Cox being an out actress who has made huge progress for the trans community, if it's not a celebratory story like that, and most often it's not, it's bad things happening. Just today, it was announced that the Trump administration is going to roll back protections for trans people in healthcare. Yesterday, it was announced that the shelter system is going to be allowed to discriminate against transgender people. And in the last week, three transgender women of color have been murdered. And then, you know, there's all sorts of feelings that go along with that. There's so many bad stories, so many stories of discrimination, harassment, and, and violence against our community. I think it's important for me to talk about those things, but when I'm sharing my story and when I'm reflecting on my experiences, I really want to show people also that it, it is possible to live an awesome life as a trans person, to, to be happy, to be successful, to be in a great relationship to achieve great things athletically, because I think that those stories are really powerful and important too, to sort of combat all the bad that we're facing in the world. You started competing as a man in 2010. Yep. Is that right? Yeah. And what was the reception by other competitors, other men who are competing with you? Surprisingly, really, really good. And I say that surprisingly because in my mind, I made it out to be, you know, a disaster. And I think a lot of trans people do that what holds trans people, queer people, lesbian, gay, bisexual people back from coming out is the fear of what other people will think and how we'll be received and how, you know, what discrimination might happen after that. So I made up these stories in my mind of how competitors and teammates and family members and coworkers were going to treat me when they heard this. And athletically, I was really surprised because that was the space that was probably the straightest and whitest and most cisgender, meaning not transgender. For a lot of my teammates, I was the first trans, pe trans person they ever met in real life, first person they had a conversation with, first time some of them were even hearing the word. And you know, my experience with them was awesome because I was a teammate and a coach, and they loved and respected me as a teammate. And it made that transition a lot easier in terms of you know, them accepting me. Other competitors, I mean, when I started to win races overall, like win outright win races against the second place male, he would come up and, and say, you know, congratulations. And you have that good sportsmanship moment at the end of a race. And a couple of days later, remember one guy found me on Facebook and everything is trans there and <laughs> talk a lot about trans community and advocacy. And he messaged me and said, you know, congrats on the race. It was awesome. And you know, great job. Keep it up. And it's really great to see what you're doing. And that's really been sort of the summary of my experience. While I have had discrimination, I've had people say some things. By and large, it has been positive, and I and I definitely attribute that to the male privilege that I've received in transition. So going from female to male and being perceived as male, that I don't face as much discrimination outright, and the fact that I'm white, and that is also plays into it. Uh, triathlon is pretty white sport, <laughs> but but I think socially, I've definitely noticed that you know white privilege has played into it, and also the sexism of sport. And the fact that people don't think that someone assigned female at birth 
would be competitive against someone assigned male at birth and against men right from the start. How does it feel to represent your country? I don't think there are actual words that could describe it. I think it's one of the only times that I've been speechless in my life is, is getting that uniform in the mail. There's a sense of pride, but there's also, for me, it's a sense of, of pride and rebellion. And you know the fact that I could go and represent my country overseas in, in sports, but not be safe to use the restroom in a place like North Carolina or Texas. You know, and, and that that there's such a discrepancy there that I'm able to represent my country in sports, but wouldn't be able to serve in our military and represent our country there. And so, you know, I think for me, it's it's I want to show people that it is possible and I want to be a great representation, not only of myself and my athletic ability, but of what the potential is for the trans community. If I have the story right, there was a moment on your 29th birthday that was pretty remarkable. Could you talk about that a little bit? It was a really uncomfortable experience just in general because I wasn't a person who liked to celebrate my birthday at all. And I think it was because as as a young person and in my 20s, I just felt like I was not worthy of celebration. So I would never tell my friends what my birthday was, wouldn't wouldn't let people celebrate. The song Happy Birthday gives me, you know, a, a, a sort of a clockwork orange-like reaction. <laughs> that it is like, it's offensive to me. And we went to this restaurant and uh, I ordered my food and then I just broke down at the table and started to cry uncontrollably. The trigger to that was the waiter coming over and saying, Hey ladies, can I get you, you know, can I take your order? And in that moment of being addressed in that way, I think that was the, the point at which I, I said, I need to do something. I ran out of the restaurant. I was crying, you know, just uncontrollably on the New York City sidewalk and got home. And the first thing that I said was, I never thought that my life would be like this. And it was just that moment of saying, I can't imagine another birthday, like living this life. It just can't happen. Understanding when I think it was your aunt or grandma pulled you aside and said, mm-hmm. you know, little girls don't run around with their shirts off, mm-hmm. you know, at that moment, was there confusion or how did that, how did that feel? And then how did that, that knowledge feel, you know, up through high school? Because I think there are probably a lot of young people who are questioning, right? Yeah. So I'm, I'm just wondering if you can kind of describe the feelings that you had. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I think my initial feeling when, when my aunt pulled me behind the house and said, little girls can't run around with their shirt off, I think my initial feeling was confusion because I felt... And I saw visually that all of the little kids in the neighborhood looked the same. And so I didn't understand actually what the difference was between myself and my brother and my cousins and the neighbors at that time. But four is a pretty young age to, it's kind of understandable that one might not get that. I think as I grew up, you know, I started to have these messages of, even in, in elementary school, I was just an androgynous or more masculine little kid. and so. I would have kids in class say he to me all the time. And I secretly loved it and maybe not so secretly. And it felt really comfortable to me. And I would be really, I would be ashamed and embarrassed when people would correct them. As an adult, people saw me as being deceptive or not Mm -hmm. telling them the truth about Mm -hmm. my identity. And as a kid, I think, you know, it was just like kids are curious and, and would say things. I actually had a, I had a sixth grade teacher who in a new school in sixth grade, a computer teacher who for the first, say, eight weeks of class called me he and Mr. Moser. And I only had one friend in that class who knew who I was and he would kind of snicker about it. But I, I asked him like, don't say anything. And so, you know, I felt the best in that class. I felt so like myself in that class and just like so acknowledged to have a teacher say he. And when the teacher found out in that ninth week of class that everyone else is calling me she, I I faced a lot of backlash from that teacher for the rest of the course. One of the things that has been very illuminating for me is listening to you talk about the phases of transitioning because I didn't know what they were and that that there are multiple phases and you can be in one, stay in one for a long time. Mm -hmm. Maybe for our audience, could you talk about what the phases of transitioning are? Yeah. So there are a couple of different ways that people can transition. 
One would be making a social transition, which would mean something like changing your name, your pronouns, your style of dress, your haircut, how you express yourself to the world. It could also mean changing bathrooms that you use in public, locker room facilities. So that would be making a social transition. And you know, for something like that, it's, it's simply a matter of expressing yourself or asking people to address you in a different way. So my first transition was a social transition where I asked people, my friends and family and coworkers, to say he instead of saying she when they referred to me. And so that's a good example of that. Another way that, that people can transition is making a medical transition. And this would be cross-hormone therapy. So taking testosterone, which is what I do, taking estrogen treatment and testosterone suppression for a trans woman. It could also potentially include surgeries, gender-affirming surgeries. I think an important note here is that not every trans person wants to have surgery. You don't need to have surgery in order to be trans. It's not a requirement. It's not covered by insurance in some cases. And the future looks pretty bleak for it being covered by insurance in, in the United States. And, and some people just don't have a problem with their bodies. I think there's this narrative that trans people are trapped in the wrong body. And while some of us feel that way, for sure, that's an accurate narrative for some people, other people just dislike certain parts of their body or feel totally comfortable in their body and just, you know, that's not even something that they need to consider. Okay, so there's social transition, there's medical transition, and then there's also legal transition, which would be changing your documents. So your driver's license, passport, birth certificate in some cases, social security cards, ID cards like that. How was the social identity phase for you? Talking to your family, talking to coworkers, what was that like for you? Like I said, I, I really worked myself up to be very afraid of what the outcome would be of telling people. And it was not as bad as I thought that it would be, but it was definitely still challenging each time that I told someone. And each time it got a little easier, but it still was a very uncomfortable process. That disclosure happened you know, kind of... Facebook wasn't as popular. And so, you know, with a lot of my family and friends just freshly on Facebook, I was reconnecting with a lot of old people in my life. And so I used social media as a way to come out to people who I had basically dropped from my life, friends and, and uh, close people from college that I stopped talking to. And essentially, I stopped talking to them because I didn't know how to talk about myself to them. And I feared that they wouldn't accept me. So I use social media, you know, Facebook Messenger to say, you know, actually I'm trans and here's what this means and here's a link that you can read about it. And that for me was an easier way to take the pressure off of telling somebody face to face. My work experience was a bit troubled because as I mentioned, my HR person didn't know what trans meant. So I had to do not only a lot of educating, but also advocating for myself. Any sort of really strong backlash by anyone or did they keep it to themselves if they weren't comfortable? Most of the backlash was kept to themselves. There was one situation with a director who publicly said some stuff and mm. you know received a little bit of uh, reprimand for that, but not what I would deem appropriate in terms of the repercussions of their actions. My most challenging part, I think, was having a person in a leadership position who consistently misgendered me for almost two years after my announcement of, of transition. And I don't think it was intentional. Okay. And it also doesn't matter. You know, at, 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 at the two-year mark, yeah. it really didn't matter. And at, at the one-year mark, at the six-month mark, it really didn't matter to me. I would go into meetings and, and literally hold my breath. And I, I would just feel like I was going to pass out every time this person started to talk about something that I was working on because I could just feel it coming. And it would be, you know, it would be face-to-face, one-on-one, but it would also be in meetings of 25 people. It, it consistently happened. And I think I really had to tell myself and, and be comfortable with myself to say, you know, at first when it happened, and not just with this person, but also when I would go to a restaurant and someone would say she, you know, after six months into my transition or whatever, I would say, what am I doing wrong that people aren't seeing my, me the way that I see myself? Like, you know, is it that, like, does this hat make me look more feminine or like, should I not wear this shirt? Or like, I would just go through my entire, you know, do I, I shouldn't move like this. I shouldn't say this word. What am I doing wrong? And I really had to understand that this was not something that I was doing wrong. This was this supervisor's inability to get it and to make the switch. And, mm -hmm. and that, it, you know, that was, that was on them. 
It didn't make it any easier in meetings, but it definitely helped me not beat myself up about their their issue. When you think about before transitioning and now, how would you compare your levels of happiness? You know, I'm, I'm exponentially more happy now since transition. And that it, there were definitely rough times at the beginning, uh, particularly as I kind of grew into my identity as being perceived as male. Like my comfort with myself changed when I told other people because I felt like I didn't have to hide myself anymore. I could actually just talk about what I was interested in, say what I did over the weekend, you know, and, and express myself how I wanted to and not be questioned about it and not fear being questioned about it. So that, you know, release of being out made me happier, even if people weren't responding to it appropriately or positively. But every year I've gotten older has been better than the last. And that is a really cool thing to say that you know, growing up is pretty awesome. And, and knowing who you are is pretty great because every year I've, I've been happier than the year before. You're sometimes called the man who changed the Olympics. Who first called you that? The BBC. That's pretty awesome, right? It is. The BBC and New York Magazine. And what did you do to earn the title? So in 2015, when I made Team USA, I was ineligible to compete in the world championship on Team USA because of the International Olympic Committee policy for transgender athletes, which governs the world championships as well, even outside of the Olympics. And I had to challenge the IOC policy on trans athletes to get access to compete in the world championship. Policy at that time said that trans athletes needed to have a full lower surgery, internal and external genital modification in order to compete in the Olympics or in these championship races. And I just saw that as a human rights violation that no athlete should have should be forced to modify their body in a way that they may not want to in order to compete in sports. I say, you know, adding an extra body part was not going to make me a faster runner or a better cyclist. Like it really has no bearing on athletic performance. And that was the challenge. And so in late 2015, the group met and they decided to change that policy which was released early 2016, which enabled me to compete in the 2016 World Championship. And to date, no trans athlete has competed in the Olympics. Is that accurate? That's accurate. No known trans athlete. No, no. Yep. Okay. Yep. When do you think that will change? It's coming. It's got to be coming. And I think that we have Olympic hopefuls right now who want to make Tokyo 2020. And it is very possible that someone, one of us, <laughs> may make it. I want to ask about the testosterone injections that you get. So are you on a 10 day cycle or? Yeah, it can, it can change for different people. And for me, it just is, I, like many people do a once a week shot once of, a week, okay. of testosterone, you know, and it's interesting too, because what that does is it brings my testosterone level up to somewhere within a typical male range, which is a pretty wide range. And then every day after that, it just drops and drops and drops and drops and drops until the end of the, of the seven days where I'm at the bottom or below, and then take another shot and it goes up. And so it's, it's interesting that, you know, I'm not at a level consistent amount like my peers. Do, do you feel it like the decline in your performance? Yeah, I, I don't really feel it. And I, there's been no correlation to, you know, my performance, performance on day right. six versus okay. day two. But I think in the times that I have missed a shot, I've felt it. And in times when my levels were just being figured out and I'm, I'm constantly monitored. I have to submit all of my paperwork and test results to different organizations to have clearance in order to compete in world championships and things like that. Mm -hmm. So I'm pretty well monitored. And it doesn't give you a competitive advantage in any way? No, what, you know, what, so testosterone is definitely a, a performance enhancing substance, right? But what, what we've found is, and there are very few studies about transgender athletes. And so that's the first point is that anybody who is giving you information like it is, you know, set, set in stone is totally wrong because we just don't know enough to say. But for what, what we know right now is that for transgender athletes, for taking cross-hormone therapy, so for me taking testosterone or for a transgender woman taking testosterone suppression and estrogen treatment, that one moves over into the other sort of gender category of sports at the same level as their, as they were competitive in their first class. So I was a top 10% female athlete and I transitioned to be a top 10% male athlete. You know, you may have a transgender woman who was a 
you know, 30, 35th percentile male athlete and will move over and be somewhere in the 30s as a female athlete. And that's just based on, you know, the, the amount of difference between the gender classes typically. And we know that there are women who can smoke men in different sports and that there are some guys who are bigger, faster, stronger, and will always dominate. And so there are also men who are very bad at sports and who would never beat a female athlete in anything that they do. And so, you know, there's a, a wide range of performance and ability as well. So is it assumptive of me to say that you're, you're an advocate of trans women competing against or at the highest levels? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think trans women, you know, trans women are women and belong in women's sports. They do not belong in men's sports at all. <laughs> they are not men and they do not belong in a third category of competition uh, because that's not where they want to be. Where's the IOC on trans women competing? So the IOC changed the policy in 2016 with my challenge. And, and not only did they change the surgery requirement, so they removed the requirement for any athlete to have lower surgery in order to compete. They also lowered the amount of wait time that a trans woman needed to wait in order to compete as female. So the old rules said two years after taking estrogen treatment, uh, a trans woman could compete with women. And based on the best doctors, information, medical experts, and studies that they had, and in 2016, 2015, they changed it to a one-year wait time. So a trans woman takes estrogen treatment and testosterone suppression, has their hormone levels in a typical cisgender woman, cisgender being non-transgender, women's range for uh, testosterone, and then is cleared to compete with women. And that, that rule has been working well. It's worked well for the NCAA. It has worked well for you know, elite competition. And we're not seeing an influx of trans women just winning races. It's just not happening. Trans women have been competing in sports for years, and they are not dominating or ruining or ending women's sports. Could you talk about the organizations that you're involved in and how you're involved? I started a website in 2013 called transathlete.com. And that was really created out of my own experience of not seeing policies out there when I was questioning whether or not I could continue to compete in sport. And it is essentially just a compilation of the policies that are out there, but it's been a real great way for me to use other policies to create social change with organizations. So it's very easy for me to go to a state like Indiana and say, hey, the high school policy in California and Massachusetts are great and they're working really well and you have a very bad policy. So here's a good one for you to look at and to try to create change that way. As a side note, Indiana didn't bite on it, but other, other states have. Other organizations have changed their policies because of better information that's out there. And so that's a, a place for people to go to. It's transathlete.com. I've been involved with various sports organizations and do a lot of work with social justice organizations. And right now I'm just a, a sort of a freelancer, just uh, doing, you know, doing my own thing, working with different companies and organizations to try to spread the message of inclusion and respect in sports. You talked about maybe a lack of role models when you were younger, but do you have a role model or a mentor who has been helpful for you as you've transitioned? You know, I was really drawn to athletes who use their platform to create social change. I didn't have that sort of athletic mentor or role model that I could look to that was like me. But very helpful in my transition was Laverne Cox and you know, just the way that social media makes us all accessible. I was able to reach out to her and get some really great advice as I became more public in my transition pretty early on. We had worked together on a Glad Media piece about national, it was about Transgender Day of Remembrance and what that means to us. And uh, we became connected through that. And, you know, the best advice that she gave me was to really remember my community and to think about how I got there and never lose sight of that. And that's something that I see her model all of the time, even with all of the success that she's had, to always be mindful of the community and to use her platform to speak out. And I've really tried to you know, follow her lead on that and use my platform as a Nike-sponsored athlete, you know, as somebody who gets media coverage to talk about the discrepancies between my experience and trans women and the violence that happens against transgender women of color and you know speaking about non-binary athletes and making sure that all these other or you know areas of our community also are elevated as I get to rise. 
What advice would you have for someone who's hesitant to have a conversation with somebody who's transgender? You know, a lot of times when I'm speaking at organizations and colleges and universities, which is how I spend a lot of my time now doing my advocacy work is doing speeches and, and Q&As with people. I always started off saying, you don't know what you don't know. You don't know what you don't know. And, and it, just in the same way, like I didn't know the word transgender existed through, like, through high school. I'm pretty sure that I didn't really know what it meant. And even in college, I didn't know what trans identity really meant. And you're not that old. And I'm not that old and I'm trans. <laughs> so, right. you know, like I'm a member of, of our community and, and I didn't know for so long the understand, and understand something about myself and the words that go along with the community. Language and terminology is always changing. So it's possible that you may say something wrong or offensive and just not know it. And even members within the community can fall victim to that, you know, the way that terminology changes may, you may say something that's outdated or, or you don't know that you just don't know what you don't know. And so if we keep that in mind, but come to conversations with good intentions and, you know, good intentions can also be hurtful. The impact of a good intention comment can also be hurtful. But if you, if you go into a conversation knowing that you don't know everything, but you're willing to learn, uh, it goes a long way. I have a number of advice questions. So uh, <laughs> what, what advice would you give somebody who's questioning their identity? I would, I would say you know yourself better than anybody else. And to really think about how you will be happiest and live your best life. Because a lot of the times that I see concerns with whether or not people should transition or if they're questioning if they are trans, it, a lot of our decision making is predicated by what we think other people will think of us. Mm-hmm. and how we will be accepted. And so, you know, being out is not for everyone. And I'll say, like, I'm very hesitant to say that we need more out athletes or, you know, a lot of people say that sports will change forever, you know, once we have an out gay male athlete in one of the big four sports that's active. And I agree with that, but it's it's not right for us to try to push every athlete to be out, right, or every every queer person to be out publicly because there are a lot of repercussions that still come with that. There's a lot of discrimination and harassment and loss of employment and denying access to different areas that could come with being out. And so it's not safe and it's not comfortable for everybody. But you have to make the decision that's best for you. What advice do you have for families of someone questioning their identity? It makes such a difference to have family support. You know, there's, there's so much discrimination and hatred and violence out there in the world outside of the family structure and to have a safe place to go home to, to have supportive system. You know, in my mind growing up, I thought family is supposed to be the people who love you no matter what. And they love you for you because you are part of their tribe. And that's not always the case. You know, we have 40% of homeless youth identify as LGBTQ. A lot of the LGBTQ kids that are kicked out of their home are kicked out because of their identity, because they come out to their parents or because their parents find out. And so, you know, that number is staggering because it's not 40% of the population that's LGBTQ, right? It's, it's a much smaller percentage and 40% of our homeless youth identify in that way. So we know that, that families aren't always accepting. I think it's, it's just, it's not enough for me to say the impact of being accepting. I think to enact that is really to say your family member is the same person that they've always been. They just had the confidence and the courage to let you in, right? And a lot of people will say that it's not coming out of the closet. It's inviting other people in, right? That's really a gift for people to tell you who they are. And when someone tells you who they are, you should believe them. A last advice question here. What advice do you have for employers who want to make their workplace more inclusive for transgender employees? Start with terminology and language. First and foremost, having people be trained on the terminology and the language. And then look at your policies and see where trans people may get caught in your system. For a lot of uh, organizations, it's things like, it could be as simple as email addresses and name change policies, but also looking at your your restroom policies, your healthcare coverage, what sort of training and professional development you give to people so that they are equipped to have conversations with people. And also to give them the tools to be an ally, like the opportunities and outlets to stand up and be active in support of the trans community. For me, it was a really sort of a game changer to have people be trained and for me not to have to be the the quote unquote token trans person. 
because I was the first trans person to transition at my workplace. I was the reason why they had to change the name change policy and you know, figure out restrooms and all. You know, I felt like I was navigating the system not only for myself, but also for everybody else who would come after me, which was great for everybody who came after me, but was really challenging right. for me to be that first person. That's a trailblazer. It's And it's not an easy role no. to have because advocating for yourself is exhausting. And, it, and this is the reason that allies and accomplices are so important because you know, for me to have that person who would correct other people when they said she instead of he, instead of having to do it myself, took so much pressure off of me. Do you have an opinion on when a child should be able to begin the transition process? Being somebody who is visible and accessible on social media, I get messages every day from parents of trans kids as young as four years old. And, and I have you know, people in my life who allow their young person to tell them what pronouns they want to use. And the parents will check in on a weekly basis. What pronouns do you want us to call you this week? You know? and, and, and there are young people at age five, six, seven, eight, who are asking their parents to use they, them pronouns with them, to not use pronouns with them. And so you know, I think what we need to remember is that our, our young people are so much more advanced than we are, than anyone parental age is on these topics. And at the same time, you know, we have young people in college right now who have never known a world without an out trans person, you know, in the media in a positive way. They, you know, now people being born will never know a world without an out trans person on a U.S. team, right? And so that's a very cool situation to be in to say the world is changing. And, and you can see that the young people have an accelerated understanding of gender, of identity, and of, of how they can express themselves. There's the social, the medical, and the legal, right? And so from somebody who's cisgender and who, who is just learning about this, we automatically think of transitioning as all three of those. But it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. And the, the other thing that's really interesting about what you're saying is, I think that a lot of parents get wrapped up in what they did wrong, mm -hmm. right? I, I remember this with many of my gay friends, right? Their parents would you know, when they come out of the closet, they'd say, oh, what did we do wrong? You know, right. Mm -hmm. They didn't. Right. And I think a big challenge also is for parents to understand how they can talk about their young person to their, to their peers. Right. And I felt like that was one of the challenges that my mom faced was not that she didn't accept me as a person or as her son, but you know, she had a daughter and two sons and now she had three sons. And so, you know, and, and she had a daughter for 29 years. And so how then when her friends come back to town and say, oh, hey, how's Chris? You know, how does my mom answer that question? And I think that was the challenge of her talking to people her age in her friend group who also didn't understand trans identity. And I don't think she wanted that pressure of having to educate other people on it. You know, I think that that was something that she had to come to terms with of saying, you know, how, how will I talk about my child? And I, I see that a lot with parents of, you know, both their concerns of what their peers will think about them as a parent and about their kid as a trans person. But also, I see them worried about what the future might be like for their child. You know, particularly now, yeah. I see parents saying, you know, I don't want my kid to be trans because it's going to be really hard. And there are going to be policies put in place that prevent them from living a full life. And I, I think that the, the uh, you know, if, if a young person or any person of any age has the courage to tell you who they are, whether you're a family member or a friend or whoever, you know, know that the, the life that they were living in secrecy or not being able to be honest about who they were is probably harder than the life that they, that they are going to face. And so while there are very real challenges and very real discrimination and violence and, you know, harassment and all of those things we talked about against the trans community and the queer community, that, you know, not being able to be who you know you are is incredibly painful. What's been your experience with male privilege? I sort of knew how I was going to navigate telling people, but I had no idea. No one talked about the transition of privilege. You know, I've always been white, so I had a sense of white privilege, but I didn't ever really think about it as many white people don't. Or didn't in that time, right? But it was extremely amplified when I went from being a masculine presenting woman in a relationship with a woman 
to being perceived as a straight white man. And, you know, it was something like I would go to lunch with my boss, she would hand them the credit card and the check would come back to me. Or, you know, walking into any sort of bodega in New York City corner store and having people address me first before addressing my wife or before addressing my friend who's a person of color. Or, you know, it's it, it just there are so many moments like that, including access to conversations that I that I didn't have access to before, you know, being in a barbershop. And, and hearing people talk about women in a certain way, being in an Uber ride and having my driver feel like he could have a conversation with me about a, about a woman in a certain way. And, you know, all of these, I think, have, have made me a stronger feminist and uh, advocate for women through this transition. You have a partner, but you're married. I am married. Yes. And you've had the same partner for a while. Do you want to Talk about her and that relationship. Yeah, I, you know, I think that she has been my biggest ally in in this. And as I mentioned, I I had dated men through high school and college, and in my last year of school, met an incredible woman, and I uh, was very hesitant to have a relationship with her because I didn't know any gay people, and I didn't see positive representations of of relationships, and I was also terrified of what my friends would say and what my family would say. And so we started a relationship and I think I had to come to terms with identifying as queer and, and what that meant for me. And actually, you know, she's, this is part of the reason how I understood my identity as a trans man was that my relationship with her, when people would call us a lesbian couple was really offensive to me. And it was just a word that I didn't like. And I, you know, other people can identify that way and that's fine. I respect that identity, but for me, it just didn't fit the word lesbian. And as people would say that to me, I came to understand that I, it's not that I am not queer I, and I identify my sexual orientation as queer in a positive way. And I understand that for people of a certain age, the word queer still holds some negative connotations, which is why, you know, I always mention that it's in, language changes all the time. And, right. But when people would say lesbian, I just realized that I didn't identify as a woman and that that's how that felt wrong. And so that actually helped me understand my gender identity a little bit more. What? common misconception about trans people would you like to clear up? And you can pick more than one if you want. Well, there's not just one way to be a trans person. And I think that's one of the common misconceptions is that people think that you have to go through a certain order of certain steps in order to do that. And when I first came out, a lot of people would ask me inappropriately if I quote unquote had the surgery as though having surgery was the only way to be a trans person. And also you wouldn't ask anybody else what's in their pants. And so that was super offensive that anyone thought that they could have that information. So, you know, understanding that the trans community, trans community is super diverse and there's not just one way to be a trans person. I think there is less and less, but still some people who think that being trans is inauthentic, that it's, that it's not a real identity that people have, that people are trying to gain something through transition. And I see this, you know, particularly in sport, people say that trans women are, you know, men pretending to be women so they can dominate women's sports. And that invalidates the identity of, you know, trans woman as a woman. And so, you know, I will just say in the sporting context, no one is transitioning to achieve athletic glory. <laughs> like it's just not happening. Uh, people transition because that is for many of us a sort of last resort. In, in some cases, like, you know, the, the rates of attempted suicide in the trans community are exponentially higher than cis, the cisgender community. And a lot of us, you know, feel like that there's no, there's no way out. There's no life for us here when we are unable to be authentic in our identity. Do you have any regrets? You know, I'm sure I have some regrets, but I'm really grateful for the experience that I have. You know, initially when I started transition, I thought, you know, I, I, I regret not doing it earlier and, you know, waiting that year and a half after I knew who I was because I was afraid of what other people would think or say. But I think all of that experience has made me who I am today. And I'm so happy with who I am today and you know, just so proud to be able to be in a position where I can help influence other people and create change and create an easier experience for those who come after me. And so I, you know, 
can't regret that's anything a, that got me here. That's a healthy place to be. Yeah. That's a really healthy place to be. Chris, I'm sure a lot of people are inspired, are going to want to know more about you. Where can people find you on the internet? Yeah, please find me on social media at the Chris Mosier. That's M-O-S-I-E-R. And then thechrismosier.com is my website. And traveling around the country and the world, speaking at organizations, businesses, and not just during pride events. And I think that's really important to say, you know, when we are programming queer people and trans people outside of National Coming Out Day or Day of Silence or Trans Day of Remembrance, you know, it sends a big message to say we value this community enough to have them in outside of a specialty day or, you know, a pride event or something like that. So I've really enjoyed my experience going around, traveling, talking to people. And I think there's a real, um, a real connection that people have to my story through sport. It takes a little bit of the pressure off of learning about the trans community. Interestingly enough, I found that financial organizations, banks, like really are, are attracted to my story for their, for their employees and professional development. And I think it's something about that high, high performance work environment, high performance athletics. There's a lot of similarities. So I just really enjoy talking to people and having them get to know me and know more about the trans community. We will put your website and your contact information in the show page notes, as well as resources if people are questioning their identity or family members have questions. We'll put some resources in the show page notes. Great. Chris, thank you for being a genius. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses. Your time is precious and we truly value it. To help continually improve the show, send us your feedback or guest ideas to future at 12geniuses.com. This show couldn't come to you if it weren't for a group of exceptional people. Special thanks to Tony Gordon, Jay Ludgrove, and the rest of the team at GL Productions in London. Finally, if you want more information about how we can prepare your leaders for a rapidly changing business world influenced by shifting demographics, new technologies, and innovative business models, go to 12geniuses.com.